You're listening to TIP. What I heard from engineers who worked with him at X.com is always a version of the following. And by the way, this happened multiple times. They would say to me, you know, it was the hardest I've ever worked. But part of what was inspiring is that the CEO was there at two o'clock in the morning working with us. And it wasn't somebody that was just sort of a suit who came in and didn't know how to code. Like we were solving engineering problems together. And he was sleeping there all night and he was working just as hard. And I think it's an important theme in his career, which is he'll put a lot of pressure on people, but he will put more pressure on himself. On today's episode, I sit down with author Jimmy Sony to discuss his book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. This team is made up of a lot of incredible individuals where almost all of them have now gone on to found other multi-billion dollar businesses after PayPal. For example, Elon Musk went on to found Tesla and SpaceX. Peter Thiel went on to found Palantir. Reid Hoffman went on to found LinkedIn. Max Levchin went on to found a firm and the list goes on. In this episode, we recount the remarkable 20-year story of PayPal, the many challenges they faced along the way, the unique culture at PayPal, and the role all of these individuals played in PayPal's success. Jimmy shares some great stories of the founders from their early days and sheds some light on how they got to where they are today. This was such a fun conversation and one that will give you the inside scoop on what it actually took to create the company we now know as PayPal, along with some very interesting anecdotes about the entrepreneurs that shaped Silicon Valley. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Jimmy Sony. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on today. I'm really excited for today's conversation. I just finished your book and it was so great. I really enjoyed learning about the incredible 20 year story of how PayPal got started. It was so fascinating to learn about you and covered so many great stories from the individuals involved who are now referred to as the PayPal mafia. And so I'm just interested to know what made you interested in this particular company in the first place and really in in uncovering what happened in this pre-PayPal era. Yeah, no, it's a great question because I'm not, in some ways, I sort of joke, I'm like the least likely person to do this book. Like I'm not a tech journalist. You know, I don't have a successful investing podcast. I'm kind of like, I'm a historian. My joke with my friends is like, I write about dead people. This is the first time I was writing about people who are alive. And so what happened is that I had this book that I did called A Mind at Play that was about Claude Shannon, who is a mathematician and engineer. And Shannon, for a period of his career, worked at Bell Laboratories. So he worked at Bell Labs in the 20th century. It's almost tough to capture just like how talented those individuals were and how many different kinds of people who were there were talented. And I just got it into my head like, oh, I'm sure there are like other clusters, you know, like other clusters of talent. Like I should just start to do Wikipedia research on on these other clusters, which is basically what I did. I just floated from cluster to cluster. So a few of them, you know, they're not as they're not household names, but they are interesting. Fairchild Semiconductors, one sort of early Silicon Valley history. Xerox Park is another. So Xerox Park was this like R&D wing of 
Xerox, like the copier company. And sort of famously, Steve Jobs like stole a bunch of ideas from Xerox, not stole, you know, stole quotation fingers, stole a bunch of ideas from Xerox Park. But people had done good books on both of those. And I fast forwarded in the history and was like, oh, like another place where there's this like insane concentration of talent is PayPal. And I just like naturally assumed like, oh, you know, Anything that involves Elon Musk, somebody's written the book, right? They've written the book, they made the t-shirt, they've got an app for it, whatever. And I like went on Amazon, I didn't find anything where it was like an outside voice telling the story, having interviewed everybody involved. And so then I just kind of got obsessed with it. Like I was like, this is crazy. Like somebody should do this. Like why hasn't it been done? And I kept like saying that. And my kind of rule for myself is like, if I say that often enough, I actually have to do something about it. Like if something doesn't exist in the world and I want it to exist in the world, I like have to follow it until the door slams in my face. And so that's kind of how this started. I just, I had an instinct that for as, as sort of wealthy and famous and well-known as some of these people are today, like we were just missing a whole chunk of their lives, which was when they were still trying to make it, right? And to me, I don't know about you, but to me, those are the most interesting stories. Like people get way less interesting when they're rich, but before they become really wealthy, I'm like, I want to know everything about you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I will say I'm so happy that you did write the book. I couldn't put it down because it's like what you said. It's so interesting learning about their struggles and their individual stories. And even beyond Elon Musk, I learned so much more about Max Levchin, who we'll get into Peter Thiel. And they're just such interesting, unique individuals. And so just for reference for our audience, we'll be referring to the PayPal mafia throughout this episode. Can you give us a little background on who they are and who's all involved in the mafia. Yeah, the important disclaimer on and you read this because you've read the book, the important disclaimer on the term PayPal mafia is, you know, I had this line that I actually like cut out in a draft of the book because it just wasn't good. It was like kind of funny and maybe a little too clever, maybe a little cheesy, but I was sort of like in the telling of this history, the mafia snuffed out the PayPal. Like what's interesting is that the PayPal mafia, that term came into existence in 2007. And what happened is they they all had this sort of now famous cover photo in Fortune magazine where they're all dressed up as mafiosos. And it was intended to be a joke, a satire. But by that point, you know, Peter Thiel had invested in Facebook. Facebook was taking off. All these other companies at Yelp had come out of uh, and all these other companies had come out of that alumni group. And so the writer dubbed them the PayPal mafia. That term is how we still know them today. It was not a term that was in existence during the periods that I was writing about the company, which is from 1998 to 2002. So that's the disclaimer. The answer to your question is that for a lot of listeners, you know, you'll know some of the names. You probably know the name. I mean, unless you've been living under a rock and not listening to podcasts, you probably know the name Elon Musk. He was a member of this group. Uh, he was an alum of PayPal, helped to create the company. Peter Thiel is likely a name that people know. They might know Keith Raboy. They might know David Sachs, Roloff Botha. What you are more familiar with, most likely, is the companies that have emerged from this group. So YouTube uh, was created by alumni of PayPal. Yelp was created by alumni of PayPal. Palantir, Matterport. Like if you've ever looked at a house, like a 3D image of a house, Matterport came from an alum of this group. Again and again, on and on. And there's just so many. I mean, it's honestly hard to catalog like the number of companies that they either invested in or created. And so that that whole basket of companies, that's typically what people refer to when they say PayPal mafia. That term was not like in existence when I was writing about the, when I was the, during the period that I was writing about. And so that's kind of generally what people mean. And, and I'll add one more thing. Generally, what people say is they're kind of the people who today are thought to be the tippy top of Silicon Valley. Like they are like 
across like business engineering, et cetera, they're thought to be kind of the best of the best of that world. There's some debate about that. I mean, obviously they've been successful, but that's kind of what the term refers to broadly. Uh, One final thing, which is that term is not beloved by everybody who's a member of the alumni group. So there are some misgivings about it. And I kind of document some of the back and forth about it. Most people, if you don't take it seriously, and if you sort of see it as like a a very quick way to brand something, I mean, it's been hugely successful because all these other startups around the world have tried to create their own like quote unquote mafias, like the Revolut Mafia in Europe, Flipkart Mafia in India. So the whole mafia thing's kind of taken off, but it's just about like the least mafioso business and sector of American life you can think of. That is so true. And you said it, they have gone on to build so many other successful companies. And it's just crazy to think how one group of individuals have done so much. And they're sometimes in different fields too, which is interesting. And so just really brilliant people. And I want to go through each individual story that really contributed to this PayPal and the creation of it. And I want to start on Max Levchin. I found him such a unique and very interesting individual. And And so you started off chapter one by talking about him. And so why did you decide to start off the story with Max? I'm glad you picked up on the importance of him as a character. And I can talk through the decision to make him chapter one because it was a bit like it wasn't, I wouldn't say controversial, but it was definitely not what you'd expect. Like for a book like this, you kind of, you know, you sort of expect somebody to lead with Elon, I guess. I don't know. So there were a couple reasons. One is simply chronological. Just for listeners who may not be super familiar with the story or who haven't read the book, PayPal as we know it is the merger of two companies, two separate companies. One is called Confinity and it's created by Max Levchin and Peter Thiel. And if you sort of do the chronology, they kind of really start to build the company in late 1998. Another company created by then a young Elon Musk is called X.com. He really starts that company in early 99. He's had the idea simmering for a few years, but he doesn't really like incorporate anything until early 99 and start to recruit people, et cetera. And so if you just, in just what I just said, you know, Max really starts this company in late 98. So if you're, if you're doing, if you're like faithful to the chronology, you would start there. There's another reason, which is the more important reason, which is one of the things you try to like, if, like if one of the things I always try to do with my books is like, I try to throw curveballs. Like I don't, you know, I sort of don't want to be boring. You don't want to just do the same book that everybody's done with the same people. And I found that Max had this very interesting, uh, call it like an arbitrage, like the level of his success is far greater than the level of his public, like public profile. So people don't really know who he is. In Silicon Valley, by the way, he's super well known. Like he's like very well regarded. You know, he's an engineer's engineer. People sort of see what he's done. And he's been an entrepreneur multiple times over. In Silicon Valley, he's known that way. Outside of Silicon Valley, if you said that name at a dinner table, people are not likely to know who he is. So to my mind, that was like opportunity. Like I was like, oh, that's interesting. If I start with somebody who is lesser known, it's very interesting for the reader because they're learning a story they haven't heard. The final reason is this. He immigrates from Ukraine to the United States as a very young, as a young person and, you know, then becomes this huge success in Silicon Valley. And at its best, at its best, that is like actually one of the things I think Silicon Valley does exceptionally well. It takes people who are not from here and it gives them opportunity and they have the chance to build sort of these big businesses, right? And it doesn't always like, admittedly, it doesn't always operate at its best. But I thought of his story as a very classic American story of immigration, of kind of finding his way in a new country, of learning language, learning sort of mores, and then figuring out his life. And that life happens to encompass these like massive businesses. And by the way, for people who don't, you know, 
who don't know. I mean, he's also like invested in everything. He served on the board of Yahoo for many years, right? He created a company called Affirm that is a public company today. It's a quintessential like American immigrant story. And as somebody who was an immigrant myself, I was like, you know, that sounds, that's, this seems familiar to me. I know what this is like. Let's start with this. Yeah, I really loved learning about his story. I will admit I didn't honestly know too much about him before this book. And so I really appreciated that and learning more about his background. And one of the other things I just really appreciated that you captured in this book was uncovering more of their I guess, journey before they've become successful. So a lot of people know about what they've done now, as you've mentioned, but learning about what they did beforehand was so much more interesting to me. And one thing I noticed that was common to all of them is that they failed so many times in the beginning. They never stopped. They just kept pivoting when something didn't work. Even if their entire business model crumbled, which happened a few times for Cofinity, which was Max Lovechin and Peter Thiel's company. And they just thought of a new business model and a new way to spin the company. So I just thought that was so remarkable and how you just captured those nuances. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because it was what I was trying to do. Like, and here's why, like there's a why behind that, right? And the why is this, it is, there's sort of two separate whys. One is I just think like once someone, again, sort of cousin to my earlier comment, when someone becomes successful, like we have this default switch in our brain that's like, maybe a little, like we assume that they were always this way or we assume that it was going to happen or like we sort of forget that there's like this long, horrible climb to that level of success, right? And I wanted people to appreciate that the 27-year-old Elon Musk is not the 52-year-old Elon Musk. Like that this is actually somebody who was like honestly making decisions about what, like whether to go to grad school or whether to start a company or whether to get a job. And he like tried to interview for a job and it didn't go particularly like he had hoped. And he, it was, but he was conflicted, right? And when I was around his age and like, I mean, people I know now, those are the issues we deal with. Like what decisions are right? How do I make that kind of decision? Who do I talk to? Who do I turn to for advice? So that was like part of it is I just wanted people to appreciate like these people are not like fully formed. They don't, they're not born at the age of 52 with billions of dollars, right? Like let's appreciate that. The second part of the why is that the Silicon Valley, and I didn't really understand this and probably don't still because I'm not a founder, right? But Silicon Valley is basically like an institution that begins with failure. Like it's like this really interesting thing where like you're, you might have a plan, you might have a PowerPoint deck and you will throw it out the window again and again and again and again. And I think we say that and I can say that, but it's so much harder to grasp until you're sort of knee deep in a story about how a business came to be, right? And I think that's really important. Like that's actually something that it's hard to do right. That's like really hard work. And I, I, and to live with that failure, like one of the things that's happened in the aftermath of the book is I've connected with all these founders and they've described reading the book as therapy because they're like, look, this is like how I feel every day. Like we feel like things are just going to bust up at any moment. And so I wanted some of that uncertainty to like kind of come back into the culture. Wow, that is so interesting. I want to get to some of those post conversations in a bit. I want to stay kind of chronological in the story so that our listeners can have a grasp of what happened. And I want to start with Peter Thiel because he was such an important figure in this book and throughout Cofinity and then PayPal. So talk a little bit about him. How did he get connected then with Max? Yeah, it was about as random as you can get. And it's one of those sort of now legendary stories. But at the time, it was pretty boring. You know, Peter Thiel, at this moment in his trajectory, he has left finance. So he went from the law 
to finance and he had moved west and sort of begun investing in startups. This is kind of the mid 90s when startups are all the rage. Netscape's gone public. Everyone's getting excited about like how you could turn the internet into big piles of money. And, you know, also this new technology that like could proliferate and all the rest. He is teaching at Stanford. And one of the things that happens is that Max Levchin, it happens to arrive in Palo Alto and he's living in like an efficiency apartment. At the beginning, I believe he was sleeping on someone's floor and the apartment did not have air conditioning and it was a really hot summer in Palo Alto. And so what Max would do is he would sort of walk around and find places that had air conditioning. And at Stanford, there were always like classrooms that, you know, maybe not today, but at the time were like pretty open. Like you could sort of fake it if you looked vaguely like a new college student, you could kind of like waltz in. And what he told me is that he would just do this all the time just to get like some relief from the heat. He would walk around and he'd see some poster for something or like a little flyer for something. And he'd be like, oh, I should go go to that class so I can get get an hour of air conditioning. And he caught a notice for a class that Peter Thiel was teaching. And it was about global markets and commodities or something. And he decided to go. Now, he had heard his name before through a mutual friend, uh, Luke Nosek. But he was really purely, I mean, not purely, but he was there for the air conditioning. And then he stayed for the lecture. And what he thought would be a big lecture turned out to be a handful of people. And Max just basically kind of found a seat. And he was really impressed by the way Peter was presenting these concepts. And that's where they struck up a conversation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah, that meeting story was so interesting. And again, I just love all of those little details in the story about how a big part of the story, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like it was luck. And I think a lot of them attribute a lot of, not a lot of the success, but some of the success to luck. And it's just very interesting how you captured that in the story. Yeah, I think, you know, it's difficult because if depending on who you ask, they they have like a strong allergic reaction to the word luck. Peter has this line, it's not in the book, but it's from his other writings where he says like luck is an atheistic word for God. But at the same time, my assessment is that so many things happened that could only be ascribed, like if you don't like the word luck, maybe it's fortune. I don't know. I And at the end, I kind of conclude like, look, some of this is just good fortune. Some percentage of it. It doesn't take away from someone's hard work to say that things worked out well. And there's actually this, um, this is funny meditation in the middle of the book. I interviewed one of the early employees. His name is David Wallace. And he's, he's a religious, he's pretty religious. And he said, you know, one of the things that's like in in the gospels, like one of the things they, they talk about, I think it's a gospel, but in his teachings, in his faith, they talk about how you ha- you can't just have faith, you have to have good works. Like you have to, you know, one without the other is kind of uh, incomplete, right? And so to my mind, it's like, yes, PayPal, this group of people worked really, really, really hard to make the company successful. They also had their, their fair share of good luck. And I know people will disagree with that, but I, I do think that's a portion of it. And it can, luck can come in many different forms. It can come in the form of finding the right person for the right job, timing your product right, But I I think you have to give luck a little bit of its due. And I guess I want to chat about Elon now because you mentioned this before. You said that, well, I think that you did a great job of humanizing him, making him relatable. He had a really great story that I had no idea about before I read your book. And so one of the things that I found most interesting was how he's just really always been so exceptional. Even in his first intern job, I think it was Bank of Nova Scotia, where his director gave him um, an assignment to do. And he was like, oh, this will keep him busy. And then he got it done right away. And he found a way for the bank to make billions of dollars somehow. And they're like, no, no, that's too risky. And then Elon was like, oh, banks are not innovative. And he got mad and left. And so I love that. I think that was so interesting to learn about his character. And also really how I did not know before reading this book how his one of his first dreams was revolutionizing the financial industry. And so that kind of works into the first part of his story, which I'm hoping that you can share a little bit with our listeners. Yeah, it's, you know, again, it's so easy to get wrapped up in like day to day coverage of his life or what brand of Kleenex he uses or whatever people happen to be covering, right? And look, that's like understandable. Like it, I get why that happens, but his story starts out you would never if you, I mean, maybe some people would have said, oh, this person's destined for success. I'm not sure that they could have predicted the stratospheric success that he had. So Elon leaves South Africa to come to Canada. And the internship you're describing is sort of his first internship in Canada. And it's at this place called Scotiabank. The important thing about the internship isn't is to some degree that he interned at a bank. The more interesting thing is that he meets this mentor, Dr. Peter Nicholson, who I had the great fortune to interview. So I spent a lot of time talking to Dr. Nicholson. And Dr. Nicholson is this person, he's got a wide range of interests. He was in Canadian politics. He was a PhD. So he had scientific, he had a scientific training and he kind of like Elon cold calls him. And so when, when Elon and his brother are new in Canada, they don't know anyone. And so all they do is just they, like they talked about in some other setting, they talked about like, we just cold call anybody we could just to like get meetings. Dr. Nicholson, for some reason is like, okay, I'll take a meeting with you. And so they have lunch with him and 
he said, he's like, look, right away, you could tell these brothers were sort of very impressive. And he had this internship that he was trying to fill. So, look, I got a spot on the team. Elon takes that spot. And he ends up working at Scotiabank for a while. And it's interesting because the thing you describe is like, even then, Dr. Nicholson said, like, number one, he was very, very precocious. Like, he could sort of, you know, he was like thinking about problems in a way that was far beyond his years. The other is that he had a huge appetite for risk. And so he proposes this idea that's very risky for the bank, but could be very lucrative. And the bank poo-poos it. And Elon's lesson from that is, as he puts it in the book, very colorfully, he puts it in the book, like, banks don't take any risk. They're not innovative. And if, and his line in the book, I think I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, if this is how they operate, then anybody can come in and beat them because they don't know what they're doing, right? And so he, that lesson or that nugget stays with him. And it's the reason that the idea of X.com is appealing to him, the idea of doing something in financial services with the internet, because what he sees is an opportunity to essentially cut out a lot of the friction and cut out a lot of middlemen within finance. Yeah. So Elon's always been such a big dreamer before SpaceX and Tesla. He was in the financial industry. And yeah, it was really interesting learning about that part of his journey. And then I guess let's merge together the two stories between X.com, which was Elon's financial industry company that he wanted to, that he did create, and then Cofinity and kind of talk about how they were two different, completely different business models and then how they eventually came to compete with each other. Yeah, it's the craziest story, right? Like it's like you, it's like one of these things, like the more I dug into it, the more I was like, this is like, I mean, it's, you know, uh, what is it sort of fact is stranger than fiction. Here's what happens, the condensed version. Elon pursues X.com. What he wants X.com to be is the one financial services superstore, the only place you need to go if you need to do anything financial. Max and Peter, after several pivots like you described, what they land on is this idea that we want to email money. We want to like make emailing money work because nobody had really made it work seamlessly. And what happens is X.com, like emailing money is just a part of a big portfolio of projects. Both of these companies not a, they kind of launch around the same time. They launch the emailing money components around the same time and both of them take off. And a big part of the reason they take off is because they're basically giving money away, $10 and $20 bonuses to people who open up new accounts. And so you can sort of predict what happens. If somebody walked up to you in the street and handed you $10, you would like, okay, great. Thank you. You know, that's essentially the internet equivalent of what they're doing. And they take root both companies, X.com and Confinity on a platform called eBay, a new-ish auction platform at the time. Not They were a public company, but still relatively new eBay had not figured out how to reconcile payments. And so the idea of like a seamless way to email money was really appealing. And so what happens is that both of these platforms are like becoming successful. And you have on one side, a ferociously competitive person named Elon Musk. And on the other side, you have two ferociously competitive people named Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. And they start to essentially like fight for dominance on eBay. <laughs> and I don't think if you asked any of them, like in January of 1999, if you said to them, hey, did you know that by December of 1999, you're going to be competing against this other company? And that company is three blocks down the street from you in Palo Alto. And you guys are just going to spend money like crazy to try to beat each other. All of them would said, you're crazy, but that's exactly what happened. And so the story of these two companies and of these people's lives from roughly October of 1999 through March of 2000 is this unbelievable, very personal, sometimes vicious competition over market share on eBay. In January and February of 2000, they start to realize like, look, we're just going to spend each other into oblivion. And there's a very complicated series of negotiations and the companies have what I describe in the book. And I think it's a fair description as like a shotgun wedding that's concluded in March of 2000. So they essentially go from trying to kill each other to like being locked together and they all join as one company. 
What was also super funny to learn about in the book is how Max Levchin thought that Elon's idea of X.com, he was like, oh, he's going to drown in regulatory hurdles. And then Elon was like, their idea is stupid because at first Cofinity was the Palm Pilot idea and they wanted people to be able to, I guess, transfer money via Palm Pilots. And the email thing came way later. That was an afterthought. And it was funny reading that Max even wanted to scrap that idea at first, the Palm Pilots. So that was very interesting. It's actually like one of the, I'm glad you picked up on that because it's one of the things, oh, so two thoughts about it. The first is if you think about where PayPal ended up, it's actually a bit of a disappointment to both groups of founders. Elon wants to like run finance, like defeat all the banks. PayPal did not do that. Max wants to make Palm Pilot money beaming into a thing because Palm Pilots were the rage in Silicon Valley and people thought they would be the iPhone, right? We sort of have our version of that, it's the iPhone and mobile phones generally, but that's what he thought was going to take off. In neither company really succeeds at its ultimate vision, which is kind of funny. The more interesting and kind of uh, thing that I think I had the benefit of 20 years of passage of time so they can say this now. Not sure they felt it in the moment. Actually, I think they felt it in the moment. I asked each of them, you know, so tell me, like, what did you really think about this person that you're competing with? And this what they weren't being interviewed together. I interviewed Elon separately and Max separately. And Elon said, you know, it was interesting because I had never really come up against people who could compete with me, like meaning as quickly, worked as much, like worked as hard, were as driven to win. He said, but these Confinity guys, I mean, he said, man, they can move. And he actually had this great line. He says, if you can keep up with me, whoa, respect. And it was like delivered in this kind of funny way. Max, when I asked him about Elon, he said, you know, when we met him, like he's like, I, he's like his line in the book is like, he's completely crazy, but he's also really smart. And I really like smart people. And so there was... You couldn't call it an admiration at that point. The admiration, I think, comes later. But there was at least a healthy respect that the people down the street were just as competitive and smart. And I will say, like, I think it is hard for people like this to find people who are as competitive and smart, which tells you something about both groups of founders. And I just loved all of the, I guess the struggles, learning about everything they did along the way. And I learned so much about the startup industry too. Maybe that's just a Silicon Valley thing, but the sleeping bags under the desks, the 48 hour nights and just like full days, they basically lived at the office. And so we'll get into a bit of the culture later, but I am interested for our listeners to kind of learn more about the story, tie the knots together. These companies were fighting to the death and then eventually they do merge together, but they still didn't really want to. So talk a little bit about the decision why they ended up merging. Yeah, it was complicated to be sure. Elon really did not want the merger to go forward. Several people within the executive team on both sides were pretty skeptical. They thought they were trying to achieve fundamentally different visions. So you could like, it's all understandable. You could sort of see why they're like, I don't want to merge with these people. But what happens, and this is, I think, partially the credit goes to Peter Thiel. Peter could sort of see the writing on the wall that to two in two ways. One is Confinity was just going to run out of money. Like Confinity was a, had far less capital than X.com. And the other piece of this is that he could the markets at this point were starting to teeter. So if people who didn't live this period, and I was a kid during this period, but what I learned in my research and interviewing people, you know, from 1994 to 1999, if you attached a .com to anything, you became like, you could become successful. And they're like, this is the era of like Super Bowl ads, big parties in Silicon Valley. I mean, this is like the era of excess. And in early 2000 is when that excess starts to crumble. And there's a kind of in the year 2000, it's like basically the NASDAQ loses 86% of its value. 
all of these dot coms go under. In early 2000, both Elon and Peter see that that is like, that's going to happen. There's just no way to sustain some of the valuations. A lot of these companies like did not have any kind of business model. Even if you did things like sort of discounted cash flow, you, you just didn't see how it would all the math would work. That led Peter to believe that if they did not merge, they could not close a new round of funding and that the company Confinity would ultimately go under. So he really pushed his board to try to get the best deal possible for the merger because originally it was supposed to be an acquisition and it ended up being a 50-50 merger. But in everything I just described, you could imagine like they didn't, this wasn't well planned. This wasn't like a year of due diligence. And this was like a few weeks and slapping these companies together. And as one executive put it, he said, you know, we never really solved the 2X problem. We had two CEOs, we had two CEOs, you know, we had two of everybody. And the goal was to just to get the merger done as opposed to make it smooth. And so the next three or four months were pretty chaotic. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash MI. 
All right, back to the show. Mm-hmm. And so then eventually when they did merge together, you mentioned they faced the financial troubles with the dot-com crash. And so what were some of the other challenges they faced when they merged these two once competing companies together, lots of strong personalities and people with honestly different visions? What were some of the hurdles that they faced? Well, I think within weeks of the merger, they oust their CEO. So the entire employee group and senior executive group essentially threatens to resign in mass. So there's a CEO uh, who is ousted. He is replaced by Elon Musk, a CEO. Within two and a half, three months, the three months of Elon being CEO, the employees again threaten to resign in mass and they oust him in a kind of now famous moment where he's on his honeymoon and they they say that it's either him or us. And the board says, well, we're going with the employees. Um And so, and so that's like problem, you know, sort of issue one, issue two, you could go down the list. Uh, There's also fraud. So part of what happens is that it's not particularly, you know, in my descriptions of it from other people, it's not really that hard to build an emailing money system. What's hard is making sure you don't lose your shirt while you're building an emailing money system. And so they have just like endless amounts of fraud. There's sort of minor fraud. Like if you think about like college students creating, you know, elvis.presley at hotmail.com and using it to get 10 bucks and like siphoning that away, that's relatively minor. The more complicated stuff was when people were creating phony transactions to the tune of hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars and using the PayPal platform as a way to defraud eBay sellers or to just defraud like the companies in general. Um, and so you have that, you have regulatory challenges. PayPal is new. There's never really been a ubiquitous digital payment system. So all of a sudden, what happens if somebody pays for terrorism or pays for weapons or pays for illegal drugs, right? The, suddenly PayPal is intersecting with the government and the government's not particularly thrilled about, you know, that sort of behavior. And then finally, you have the merger, as you described, of two very different cultures, two very different teams. And it's really like they double the team size. There's this great line in a kind of concluding chapter of the book where Luke Nosek says, you know, a merger is really hiring 50 people sight unseen. Um, at least that was his experience at the time. And so they have to figure out like, OK, we have two people doing the same job. How do we actually mesh this stuff? The last thing I'll say, Confinity created a product called PayPal. PayPal was taking off, but Elon and some members of the X.com team were still wedded to the idea that X.com was going to be the brand. So even at the level of the brand, there's like no agreement. So imagine the summer of 2000, everything I just described is happening and the bottom is falling out in the stock market. So this is just like controlled chaos for this these series of months. Yeah. And they went through a lot of CEOs, like you mentioned, and the I liked reading and hearing how you told the story about it was Elon wasn't mad. He was mad, I think. But then eventually he kind of came around to it because at the end of the day, he had such a large stake in the company. I think he just wanted it to do well. And if the people weren't going to perform well, if he was there, he was like, I'll move on to other things, which he did. And so it was just interesting learning about the culture. And even um, before that, the previous CEO where he got outed too. He was very, I guess it seemed like he took it well, the way you wrote it. You know, I think it's always sort of, you have to, what I tried to do, and I hope I did in the book, is not present one side story. So I interviewed all the people who were involved in this drama or these sort of two dramas. And I tried to, for the, like, I didn't, I'm not in a position, I wasn't at the company. So what I wanted to do is just present the facts as both sides saw them, right? So take the Elon example. There's a version of the facts that the people who ousted him have. And I present those, the challenges about the brand, the challenges about money, 
feeling like emailing money was going to be way more successful than a financial services superstore. And more importantly, feeling like they didn't have time because they were running out of money to do the financial services superstore. They had to stick with the successful product. Then I present Elon's side. And, and there's an architectural disagreement as well, a technical disagreement about what platform to build on. Then I present Elon's side of the arguments, right? Sort of here's how he is thinking about all of this. And I sort of leave it to the reader to like, if you want to judge, you shouldn't judge. But if you want to judge, you can judge based on the facts, right? Here are emails, here are records, here's sort of what we know about the company. And I tried in each case to at least like give each side a fair hearing and not be too have my thumb on the scale either way. But I think one of the things that you pointed out, and it's very surprising, is in the aftermath of being ousted as CEO, Elon is very gracious. He's, he's angry, but he is gracious to the people who ousted him. And he continues to serve on the board and he does not burn the company down in the press and he doesn't sort of do funny business. He is upset that he's not the leader, but he is not upset to such a degree that he's like, I'm going to tear PayPal down, you know? And there's a, there's a rational reason for that. He had a huge amount of equity and he wanted the company to be successful. There's also this part that's often missed, which is he recruited a bunch of people who worked at the company. He wasn't going to like ruin their careers either. And it's this really interesting moment because even the people who ousted him will say he behaved very well in the aftermath of that ousting and so well that, and it's sort of how I conclude his portion of the story, that when he launches SpaceX, some of the first people to support him financially when they raise big rounds of funding are the people who ousted him at PayPal. They didn't lose faith in his entrepreneurial ability. They didn't think he was the right leader for that moment in PayPal's history, but they didn't say, oh, this person's a bad person or a bad entrepreneur. And I think that's one interesting thing is you can be an amazing visionary and have these great ideas and execute them, but that doesn't always make you a great leader. And I liked how you did expand on some stories where people didn't particularly like the way he led and because he just wanted people to work as hard as he did and see things the way he did sometimes. And so it was interesting just reading all those different sides of the story. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, I think it's as true today. Like you see this sort of maniacal urgency at Twitter, right? His words, not mine. I think it's really, I mean, I'll be honest. I think it's hard for people to truly grasp just how hard he works. Like it's, you know, people sort of take shots at him for different things. The one thing I don't think that you could fairly criticize him for is being a slouch. And that sounds funny, except that what I heard from engineers who worked with him at x.com is always a version of the following. And by the way, this happened multiple times. They would say to me, you know, it was the hardest I've ever worked. But part of what was inspiring is that the CEO was there at two o'clock in the morning working with us. And it wasn't somebody that was just sort of a suit who came in and didn't know how to code. Like we were solving engineering problems together. And he was sleeping there all night and he was working just as hard. And I think it's an important theme in his career, which is he'll put a lot of pressure on people, but he will put more pressure on himself. Yeah, I really like that characterization. And I want to get into the culture a little bit more because both Cofinity and X.com seem to have a very unique culture from their vetting process where they often would quiz each other in these puzzles, logic games just for fun. And so it was really cool learning more about their story and, and their culture. So can you give our listeners a sense of what the culture was like at Cofinity and X.com, which eventually became PayPal. 
Yeah, it was, you know, you could imagine that given the companies that came out of this group, like YouTube, you know, et cetera, et cetera, like these world beating companies and SpaceX and all of these things, like you're sort of raw material is you start with a lot of very smart people and very driven people. And so one specific aspect of the culture that I tried to focus on because it came up again and again in my interviews is puzzle solving. And they they had this process where they would interview people. This is not unique to PayPal, by the way, but they took it to extremes, which I'll describe in a second. They, when interviewing candidates, they would toss these sort of complicated math and logic puzzles at them. This is particularly true on engineering, but honestly, they did this to the folks who interviewed on the business side too. And it was at the description, you know, there are some people who hated this practice, still do. The description that was given to me by Max Levchin was interesting. He said, you know, a lot of these puzzles or problems, it's actually about being an efficient problem solver. We At a startup, you don't have weeks and weeks and weeks to work on something. You actually have to find the sort of shortest distance between two points. And if you're looking at a puzzle or one of these sort of trick questions or some word problem or some logic puzzle, if you're looking at it the right way, there's usually a little hack. There's like a little trick. And if you get it, that's how I know that you're not going to spend like ages on a problem when there's a short solution, because the only thing you have as a startup is time. And the only thing you have as an advantage is that you can do more in less time, meaning you have speed, right? It's like a big point of leverage for Silicon Valley startups that they can do things more quickly than a big competitor. And so the base version of that is these like sort of logic games. The reason I said that PayPal took it one step further is it wasn't just an interview practice. I had this thing happen during the middle of my reporting and research on this. Somebody shared a bunch of email from that era. And I had the weekly company newsletters like going back like four years, like for the four years that I was writing about. And every week they would put a new puzzle like in the weekly company newsletter. And the only thing you got if you got it right was you got a shout out the next week, like with the right answer. And you wouldn't believe like the number of people who are trying to solve this just to just for bragging rights, right? Nothing more. And so it sort of shows you two things. One, this is like a puzzle or problem solving culture. And the other, these people are very competitive like and competitive when there's nothing on the line, like other than your name in like the weekly company newsletter. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in the book how him and Peter would just sit there and do this. And it's just, they just liked it. They're cut from a different cloth. And that was, again, just so cool to learn about their stories and more about their personalities and just what make them so different. Maybe that's what makes them so successful. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you next is because You've spent so much time both researching and then being in person with them and interviewing them. Was there anything common in their personality, their traits that you think just really made them so successful, not once, but multiple times? Yeah. And I think, you know, as with the other, the other question where I attached a disclaimer, one of the important disclaimers to this one is they're not all the same person. There's a temptation in Silicon Valley or in writing about Silicon Valley or thinking about it to think like everybody is Elon. They're really not. Like these are very different personalities, right? And I interviewed hundreds of people. So it wasn't, it wasn't just like sort of these three people giving me all the facts. Here are some common characteristics that stood out to me. And some other things might stand out to other readers. One is there is a kind of, Call it like a broad-minded curiosity. So one of the things that happened as I got to know these people is I discovered not just like how well-read they were in technology and like in their particular business, but how well they well-read they were just across the board. Like the novels they read, the movies they watched. Like I was just, I was honestly, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was pretty surprised that like 
Elon in our interview was like quoting and citing the Bible as casually as he was, right? Or that Max Levchin had this kind of obsession with Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, or that, you know, David Sachs was a film buff. And I suppose that's like, maybe that was to be expected, but it surprised me. So there's a kind of broad-mindedness. They read very widely. They've learned a lot. And they learned a lot, I would say, between the age of sort of zero and 20, right? Um, like it was like a, like a real curiosity and it was a broad-minded curiosity. That's one. The second is there is a desire to win. Like the one, the one thing about the description I gave earlier between the sort of competition between Confinity and X.com is both sides really, 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 really wanted to win. It was a big deal to them to not lose. And I think like if you look at each of the companies and ventures they've been involved in, like there's a real premium placed on like actually trying to win and be successful and a competitiveness that is just sort of there. It's like a fire that kind of burns in your conversations with them too. Like it's just like, a, there's like a twitchiness. Like it's like, okay, we have to win. The last thing I would say, and this is kind of a, a kind of additional comment on the puzzle solving. You know, it was important to the people in this group to try to like find answers, like to try to find the right answers to things and to do so like somewhat efficiently, but to really like enjoy the company of other people who were interested in that same thing. So like, here's a great example of this. There are people in this group who at that, during that era, were like examining life extension, right? Which is sort of fashionable now, but wasn't really fashionable then. There are people who are interested in like, there are people who drop out of high school. There are people who if they showed up, their clothes were disheveled, you know, but they were very smart, but their clothes were disheveled. There are people who were socially maybe not the most gracious or like didn't have social graces, but they were razor smart. What I would call this, this basket of things is like an embrace of weirdness. Like part of what this group does so well is that it is a place where you, if you came in like Elon did and said, I want to make mankind a multi-planetary civilization. That was like, okay, like uh, it's like within the realm of the possible, right? And so there are all these things that I would say like are at the fringes in maybe other parts of society or other parts of economic life that are wholly embraced within this group. And I don't think that's an accident because I think what you see later is a lot of things emerge technologically and otherwise where someone had to push on a crazy idea and push on it maybe a little farther than other people would go. And it, it bears fruit. And so that embrace or tolerance of weirdness is actually a very important thing. Mm-hmm. And I'll add a comment to that. Something that I observed when reading the book was it seemed like they were very direct, both with each other, but then they also were receptive and open to that directness, whether it was a criticism, a comment, or some way that they could make the product better or what they were doing. They didn't shut people down like, no, I'm smarter. And so I think that also contributed to their success at PayPal and then eventually in life going on to do other things. I think that just made things go by quicker. Yeah, you nailed it on the head. There is a directness and an honesty and a kind of bracing quality within this group that I think would make mo- and it would make me uncomfortable. I think it would make most people uncomfortable because it's it's massive intellects kind of in collision with each other. But you're right that what they manage to do, and you know, there's a few moments in the book where I kind of have them expound on this, or I find quotes where they expound on it. But Max Levchin in particular says, you know. It wasn't that we were, that the meetings were almost harmonious. Like it wasn't actually that we all got along well. We just like, we wanted to be direct. We wanted to be honest. And what he says, it's interesting. He says, you know, there are environments I've worked in after where the criticism was happening behind the back. And those are actually worse environments. 
What was interesting about PayPal, not always, obviously, there are some things that were just personal. But what happened in many cases that I saw is that pe- when people were shouting at each other, they were actually shouting at each other about the product and making the product better. They weren't shouting at each other because they didn't like each other. They were trying to figure out what the right answer was. That truth seeking is a big part, of, a key ingredient to the company's success. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that was such one of my biggest takeaways from the book. And the last thing that I want to ask you for today is if you could write a sequel to this book or just focus maybe on a post PayPal story of someone, who would it be about? What would it be about and why? Oh, wow. No, I've never, I've never really thought about it. But here's what I would say. Yeah, I think sequels have a place, right? But I think one of the things that I take away from this group is that newness has a has a very strong appeal. So I wouldn't be the person that would do the sequel because it's like I don't, you know, you sort of don't want to like part of what you learn in studying these people is like how much a new thing matters. Like this is like a po- obviously popularly titled or popularly become zero to one. This is the title of Peter's book, the idea of going from nothing to something and the something is new. It's not just a sort of vague improvement on what was there before. So I probably wouldn't do a sequel. But if I had to, I think you know, knowing what I know about about what's been written, oh boy, it's a great question. What I think I would focus on is, you know, it'd be almost impossible to do it. Like it'd be so hard to do it. But there's a school that is at SpaceX called Ad Astra. And it, I, my understanding of it, again, just from reading like what's been written, is that Elon essentially like wanted to have his children educated in a specific kind of environment. And the, the, what's been written is that he essentially like built a school for his children and then for the children of SpaceX employees. And it's called Odd Astra. And look, there's like a million other things he's done. But to me, as somebody who's a dad, I'm like, what is going on in that school? Like, I want to know everything, right? I want to like find out like, what are they learning? How are they learning? What's, who are the teachers? How do they choose what to teach? I would really be interested in that. Sort of the, this like, ne- it would be a short book and the book's not over yet, but I'd be really interested to know, like, if there's a school and buried in the SpaceX campus, like what the heck is happening at that school? It'd be so cool to learn about. Uh, that's that's a one story that I put on the spot. That's the place I'd want to go. You should definitely do that. I'm so intrigued. Yeah, what are they teaching them at this school? But that is fascinating. I would definitely support that book. Well, maybe I'll pursue it when I have a sufficient break, uh, and maybe when uh, when Elon's life calms down a bit, I'll reach out to him and, and see if he's interested. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today and discuss this amazing story with us. For the listeners who want to pick up the book and learn more about you, where can they go? Yeah, the book, you know, it's sort of that cliche, like the book is available everywhere books are sold, but you should probably just buy it on Amazon because then you can get the audio version if you prefer that or the Kindle version or the hardcover. And for me, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm not the most active person on Twitter, but I'm Jimmy A. Sony at Twitter. And then I'm just JimmySony.com. And I love, you know, I love hearing from readers. Like it, it, to me, the best part of doing this is like hearing what people notice, like what even what you noticed about the book is like interesting to me, right? And I, so I, I welcome the chance to interact with readers. It'd be great. And thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. I'll make sure to link all of those in the show notes. Thank you very much. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter. 
We study markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.